Hey everyone, you're listening to the Climbing Advocate Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Horgan. This show brings you advocates from across the country to speak about their experiences and advocacy work that happens beyond the crag. This includes climbing advocates that work on a local scale, policy professionals, athletes, and all others in between that have a deep love for the climbing environment. My aim is to connect more climbers to the work that these advocates do and inspire everyone that no matter how big or small, they have an opportunity to get involved and do their part. This show is brought to you in partnership with Access Fund. For nearly 30 years, Access Fund has been the organization that has kept our beloved climbing resources conserved and cared for. From stewardship to influencing climbing policy and educating current and new climbers on the best responsible behavior, Access Fund is on it. As they say, no crag is too big or too small to not have its interests represented. Support Access Fund by visiting accessfund.org and by supporting a local climbing organization. The show is also supported by Gnarly Nutrition. We want to thank Gnarly Nutrition for being a supporter of Access Fund and the Climbing Advocate Podcast. Gnarly Nutrition and its employees recognize that it is a privilege to visit and recreate in outdoor spaces. They believe that these spaces should be protected and safe for all to recreate in. Gnarly Nutrition. Want more. Do more. Be more. Hey everyone, welcome to the latest installment of the Climbing Advocate Podcast, episode number 25, a conversation with Veronica Baker and Danny Dobrot of the Climbing Initiative. Now I think I'm kind of willing to guess that many of you may not know about the Climbing Initiative, and I honestly did not know much about them until fairly recently, but this episode will certainly change that. And that's what we got into first, the birth of the Climbing Initiative. They started off doing research and they have blossomed into much more since then, learning about the influence climbing has and can have on local communities through community engagement, partnerships, and working with those communities to have climbing be a positive force for good and just positive change. They've connected with communities all around the globe to further their mission to create a more sustainable and equitable world through rock climbing. And I got a... Both Veronica and Danny have traveled around the globe for climbing. They have immersed themselves in the communities that the Climbing Initiative works in. So they're not, they're not just like sitting in this bubble over here and thinking like, oh, this is the, this is the influence or change we can have over there uh, on these communities so far away from us. They, they are talking the talk and walking the walk. They have been a part of these communities. They are getting out there and fully immersing themselves and learning about them learning about the ins and outs of all of them. So kudos to them with not creating that separation. You know, they're, they're, they're getting involved on the ground level. And I think the climbing initiative is filling a, pers- a perfect niche in climbing advocacy with their work. I, I, I'm so excited to see where the organization goes from here and the influence they will continue to have on this sport. It's really exciting stuff. So after we learned a whole bunch about what the Climbing Initiative is, we took the time to recap Access Fund's 2020 Climbing Advocacy Conference. It was slated to be in Chattanooga, Tennessee this year. Unfortunately, maybe perhaps not unfortunately, but kind of depends on how you look at it, but it was online. It created a great opportunity for folks from around the globe to be a part of this conference this year. Veronica said that there was 36 countries being represented at the conference this year incredible so cool 
And before I forget, just want to quickly mention the workshops and presentations from the conference were all recorded and all are available online. So I've thrown that link in the show notes. So be sure to check out, take the time to dive into some of those workshops and presentations. So much to learn there. And I always walk away from these conferences and summits each year, always having learned something. But I did not anticipate coming out of this year's conference feeling the way that I do now. After this year's conference, it really broadened my perspective on the sport. I think climbing is often looked at as something for personal gain, personal development, athletically, mentally. You know, it's often said it's a selfish sport, which I would probably argue against, but that's another topic for another time. But after this year's conference, my perspective on, on climbing has, has changed. Like I said, it's, it's, it's shifted from, from personal development a little bit towards how climbing is being used as a driver, as a medium, as an avenue for positive change and for, and for good. It was, it was amazing to, see, to hear some of these stories. And, you know, there's, there's those kind of traditional issues that we often hear about, for the lack of a better term, that are ubiquitous around the world, honestly. Things like access, stewardship of, of climbing areas, bolting development, things of the like. But some issues and opportunities are unique from place to place. Like, for example, I learned about climbing being the driver for sustainable tourism, Uh, sustainable tourism economy in Ecuador, about youth development in Mexico and just bringing families together in in these areas of Mexico and just so much more. And I've heard Yvonne Chouinard, you know, the the founder of Patagonia say, you know, their, their mission is to, they're in business to save the planet and they use making clothes to do that. On the surface level, you might think like, well, how, how does making clothes go to work towards saving the planet that doesn't seem to connect there i think you just got to dig a little bit deeper to find out you know to figure out what he really means and i think the same could be said about climbing how can climbing just climbing rocks create a more sustainable and equitable world like what where's the connection there dig a little deeper and i think you'll get a better pulse on where i'm going with this and if you take some time to listen to some of the workshops and presentations from this year's conference, you'll, you'll definitely learn about what I'm trying to get at here. And I hope all of you can walk away from this conversation and learn some more about how climbing can be a positive influence socially, environmentally, and economically. So let's get on with my amazing conversation that I had with Veronica and Danny from the Climbing Initiative. Enjoy. Thanks everyone for joining. I am joined today with uh, Veronica Baker and Danny Dobro, both from the Climbing Initiative. I'm super excited to talk to you both today. I learned about the organization a little bit earlier this year, but I'll, I'll let you get into all that here in just a little bit. Before we jump into the meat of the conversation, Veronica, I want to get us started here with a little bit of an intro. Uh, where are you based out of? A little bit of your personal climbing history, like when did you get started with the sport? Where has it taken you? I know it's taken you to the far reaches of the globe and your position with the Climbing Initiative. Thank you, Peter. Thanks for having us on. It's a pleasure to be representing the Climbing Initiative here. So my name is Veronica Baker. I am based in Boulder, Colorado. I started climbing a handful of years ago. A friend introduced me to the sport and I loved it immediately. But shortly thereafter, I actually moved to Jordan and that is where I 
had my first real climbing community. And so I was welcomed with open arms and I found that it's such an amazing way to make friends anywhere in the world. I love that no matter where I go, almost everywhere, you can just walk into a new country and have a whole group to connect with. So I love that component of it. Uh, Once I got back to the US, I started thinking about the impact of our sport and that whole thought process led me to Uh, the creation of the climbing initiative along with my awesome partners, but we'll tell you that story in a little bit. So I am the executive director and uh, I will let Danny pick up on her component. Nice. Awesome. Go ahead, Danny. So I've been climbing since 2013. Um, I started when I was a travel nurse. Um, I moved to California from Michigan. So there is a climb, there are climbing gyms in Michigan. Um, I had visited one in Ann Arbor, but it was pretty far away from my house. So I never got into it there. Uh, but when I moved to California, there was a climbing gym, like 20 minutes walking distance from my apartment. Um, and so I usually like to tackle things I'm really afraid of. So I was terrified of heights and was like, all right, well, I guess I'm going to just give this a go and see if I can conquer this fear. And so I got into climbing, but I mostly only liked bouldering for the first bit because it was less high. (laughs) (laughs) Close to the ground. Um, and yeah, so I kind of, climbed as I moved around it was like a place to um, have a gym membership Um, and then a couple years ago uh, kind of like a lot of people I went through some heartache and climbing became my refuge and so then I started actually training and really getting into it um, seeking out more opportunities to hang out with climbers and do climbing vacations and trips. Nice. So have you moved into more of the uh, roped realm, sport, tread, anything like that? Yeah, all of the above now. Um, Last year, I hosted an um, all-women's single-pitch instructor course um, with uh, an organization here in Seattle. So yeah, all of the above now. (laughs) Right on. Um, So you're based in Seattle now. Mm -hmm. Right. And I'm from the Midwest as well. I grew up in the Chicago area. And surprisingly, yeah, there is climbing in the Midwest. And I think some darn good climbing at that. I yeah. know there's great ice climbing up in the UP in Michigan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, I'm not an ice climber myself, but I know there's <laughs> yeah, some like world-class uh, ice up there, but like Southern Illinois, I, I haven't been down there yet, but I know I need to get down there and kind of represent my home state and go check out the climbing there. Yeah. And Devil's Lake. I mean, it's not like yeah, super Wisconsin. good, but there's like a uh, top roofing and trad uh, but you have to build natural ankle, natural anchors or trad anchors for all your top rope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I heard the rock is kind of glassy. It's just very it's, glassy. It's, 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 yeah, it's a different experience. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, I'm glad to uh, have a, you know, or another representative in the Midwest here today. Oh yeah. <laughs> so I kind of inadvertently came across the climbing initiative through the Power Company climbing, Chris Hampton's training company because i believe a gentleman scott who works with the climbing initiative trains with them and they posted something about scott's recent personal climbing accomplishments uh, earlier this year i think he ticked one of his hardest routes i believe something yeah. along those lines yeah and it's i think it mentioned something there about his workings with the climbing initiative it's like climbing initiative i don't think i've i don't think i've heard of them so that drew me to your all's website and I did some perusing. I was like, wow, this is, this is really cool. So I'm really excited to dive into this some more and learn about all your work and all this amazing work you're doing. Cause I was blown away by this past weekend of all this awesome work that the climbing initiative does. So to my understanding, this was a shared vision between you both. Is that correct? This was an idea that Danny and I 
somehow without knowing each other kind of <laughs> had the same sort of a glimmer of an idea separately. So it, for me, it was on a plane flight back from a climbing trip to Cuba, where I had seen the amazing economic impact in the area of Vinales. And then from that, thought about the social impact, um, the impact of people welcoming climbers into their homes. And it really occurred to me that this was something worth studying and something happening all over the world. So I had the idea to establish a research-focused organization to really just capture this moment. I thought, we're in a really unique moment of history in climbing right now, and I wanted to create an, a research organization. It's grown quite a bit from that and, and sort of become the joining, the combination of our two visions. Yeah, and I uh, somewhat had a similar experience. I went to Indonesia um, and went climbing with a local East uh, Javanese um, climber, and he was talking about how he was setting up routes in areas that used to be mining areas, um, and then the mining companies mined everything, they left, and they left this rock face, now obviously changed from the mining, but still climbable, and he was trying to um, build climbing in these locations and try to bring tourism to the areas. And I was so impressed by the idea that climbing could be a development tool. So my background is actually nursing, uh, humanitarian aid and development. So I have my master's in international community development. Um, and actually when I was in Indonesia, I was studying, uh, my field work in Zambia and happened to pop over cause I have a friend who lives there. Um, and so I was just so intrigued that this sport that I loved and had, a safe space in could also be a tool for development, which was a field that I loved as well. I'm so impressed by the the marriage between climbing and studying like humanitarian work, right? Like who, I think just on the surface level, how, how to make that connection would be hard to, hard to, uh, think of. And it's, there's, there's so much connection between the kind of these obscure things. Yeah, I think that actually the, the marriage between the two is really perfect because climbing is so grassroots and it's small in both its international and local communities. And it's also very on the ground. It has all the makings of like good development work, um, which is like being on the ground, building community with local, like building the local community up, getting everyone to sit down together at the table, have conversations about how to improve an area. It just has all the right ingredients. Mm hmm. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I want to put a little bit more color on where the climbing initiative fits into climbing advocacy because, you know, we got the like the heavy hitters in the U.S. access fund, keeping climbing areas open, stewarded, influencing policy in D.C. and so on. And the American Alpine Club, it puts out climbing publications, who also, of course, does policy work, educational work. And then here, you know, here's the climbing initiative. I think you all are fitting a perfect niche in climbing advocacy that was perhaps missing or being overlooked. And you started off doing research and has grown into more. And your mission to support climbing communities worldwide is through research, community development, and partnership. Can we dive into that research component a little bit more, looking at some of those case studies you all have worked on, looking at social impact, economic impact, environmental impact? I mean, it's all very, such interesting stuff. Could you run us, run us through a little bit of those case studies or that research component? Absolutely. The research, this started when I was a graduate student at Yale, kind of in the inception of the idea of what the Climbing Initiative would be. And I was very, very fortunate to have a university that 
embraced the idea that climbing was worth studying as a tool for development, for economic growth, social impact, all these different things. And so the through through that and with my advisors at Yale, we developed this case study model going in and looking at those different dimensions, economic, social, and environmental, and just directly asking people in the community what challenges were facing them and how they were solving them, what opportunities they see, and uh, how the international community can get involved. So that was kind of the original scaffolding that we went into our first case studies with asking those questions to people and trying to capture a broad context. So case studies really are the first thing we did and, and sort of the core of a lot of what we do is, is capturing what is happening in a given context. Beyond that, we're expanding into individual research reports on a specific issue or topic area uh, in, in, a, in a context of not trying to capture the whole thing. So we'll see have some of those coming out pretty soon. And then the big thing under research that we have announced recently is our best practices project that grew naturally out of what we've been doing with research and, and partnerships with organizations is we've realized that there's so much knowledge out there, people developing all over the world, building climbing gyms, building communities may not think of themselves as experts in the growth of climbing, but when you're doing that on the ground work, it's really, really hard. And you make a lot of mistakes along the way. You make some incredible discoveries. And so people who carry years of that experience, I think the more we talk to those kind of people, they share so many wonderful little nuggets of knowledge. And so we want to spread that around the world. So we've announced this project to create the first international best practices for the development of climbing worldwide. And we're just launching that now. So we're reaching out to potential authors and going to create a really collaborative international document to share with everyone. That's amazing. Thank you. What was your, what was your first impression when you started connecting with these communities? Uh, what did you, what, what, what were you finding out at first? Were, were tools being lacked? Was knowledge being lacked? Uh, just where to jump off to measure these impacts in these communities? Has the climbing initiative formed that bridge to provide those tools? Yeah, I think what we've learned is that the beauty of how climbing is developing around the world is that it's different in every location. Everything has a different feel to it, whether you're in the West Bank of Palestine or in Tonsai or in Chile, like everyone has their own story to tell. And so um, we'll get into that a little bit with our, when we explain our storytelling component here, but it's, yeah, it's, I love going in and meeting people, hearing the history and the tradition and the relationships, just the vibrancy of each community. So on the one hand, there is that variety between all these different places, but it really does boil down to similar issues um, being faced everywhere with access, environmental impact, all the way to community development and, and being inclusive in the way that you're building a climbing community, how you engage with locals, getting local businesses on board, creating a climber economy, uh, all the way to how you engage with local government, how you fund and implement uh, bolting, rebolting, anchor management. Yeah, there really are a lot of similarities. And so I think we can learn lessons here. And the more that we talk to each other, more that we share stories and understand the uniqueness of each context overlapped with similarities, I think there's a lot of beauty in that. So who who, who pays for these studies and who's who's on the ground conducting them? Is it partnerships with 
students here in the U.S. and universities, or is it uh, other students abroad? Who uh, who's involved in doing these studies? Our case studies and reports have been conducted by members of our team. Danny went down to Chile last year. Ludovine awesome. and I were in Slovenia and Greece and North Macedonia and Palestine last year. So we've been all over the place. It's conducted by us and all of our initial funding came from Yale University. So we wow. are uh, working towards developing other partnerships, but we were lucky to have that uh, as a way to start. That's huge. Uh, any other grants you all have to consistently apply for? We are working on that. We are <laughs> open and excited uh, by the idea of reaching out, partnering with other people. I think during the COVID period, we've really dialed back a little bit with our inability to conduct international travel. That's our main expense. So we've been mm -hmm. kind of you know, taking a look inward and, and slowing down a little bit and working on the things we already have on our plate. So as the world starts to open up again, we'll definitely be looking for other partnerships. Yeah, I'm sure you're looking forward to that. Absolutely. So excited. <laughs> <laughs> anything, uh, anything like on the docket, like, okay, this project is, is ready to get off the ground or this place, we're gonna do some research here. Anything, uh, anything of that nature when we do open up again, you can travel some more? We absolutely have some dream locations. I think one <laughs> of the things that we are looking into is conducting economic impact studies. Uh, James Maples, who we'll probably mention as we dive into the conference here a little bit, he is the foremost climbing impact, economic impact researcher out there. Mm -hmm. And we've loved connecting with him and sharing our ideas. So he has conducted amazing studies in the US. We want to join forces and start conducting studies outside of the US. So what comes to mind for me in terms of places to study economic impact, I think it would be awesome to go to El Potrero Chico and El Salto in Mexico and see what that influx of U.S. climbers season to season does after the effects of COVID have kind of worn off. Mm -hmm. um, elsewhere, it would be amazing for us to go back to Kalimnos and actually put some numbers and data toward the qualitative impacts that we observed. And then other big hotspots like Tonsai or elsewhere. Yeah, anywhere where there is a lot of buzz and activity around a climber economy. Those are some great spots. Great spots. So... Component number two of your mission, community engagement, and you mentioned it just a little bit earlier, but who are you, who are you connecting with? How are you connecting with them? How are you approaching these communities? And there's also a lot of talk about governments, both national and local, getting involved in these matters. Uh, could you put some color to that too and what capacity governments can contribute to this? Yeah, I'll actually start this conversation and let Veronica talk about the government piece. Um, so community engagement can mean a lot of different things. Uh, one of the main ways we currently employ this is through storytelling. So uh, Nikki Simon is our chief storyteller and editor, and she is amazing. Um, and so she works to communicate with different groups all over the world and help them tell their stories. So we actually prefer when people write their own stories. Um, and then our role is to kind of edit them and help them just be prepared for online um, posting. But they get to tell their story. They get to write the story and say it how they want to say it. Um, so that's the main way we perform community engagement right now. Um, we also have 
uh, international ambassadors. So part of that is kind of an overlap of community engagement and our next one, which is partnerships. Um, but our international ambassadors are also a part of that storytelling. So they're telling the stories for their communities as well, um, kind of sharing what climbing can look like in different international contexts. And they're people who are really passionate about climbing, um, not just rock climbing, but also alpinism and ice climbing. Um, so right now uh, we have Peter, and Perna. So Peter's from Kenya and Norway, and Perna is from India, and there are current ambassadors. Um, and then I'll let Veronica talk about the government involvement portion. Sure. So yes, we've also connected with local governments and national governments talking about climbing. And this is something we absolutely want to grow into as an organization. I think governments with climbing areas in their regions are interested in this sport and starting to see it as a source of economic growth. But I think this is where research and best practices come in is the more color we can give to that story, the more numbers we can put to all this, the more examples we have of places where climbing has really flourished. I think that provides some incentive for governments and other institutions to take this seriously. So yeah, we've connected. We definitely connected. Had some really interesting interviews and conversations with people. Um, there are some murmur- murmurings of projects of governments trying to get involved in this realm, but I think we're still kind of in the early stages of a lot of that. Gotcha. Well, I feel in the in in the states we are privileged in a way. We have the resources and the means to go sit on Capitol Hill annually, the, the Climb the Hill event, for example, and advocate for our sport. Do you find those opportunities existing elsewhere or are there more kind of barriers to entry? I think that really depends on the country and the area. I mean, in places like Europe, where you have such a strong history of mountaineering that in a lot of places has led naturally into the development of rock climbing as a well-known sport, there the institutions and Uh, federations and associations, local climbing organizations, those exist. So they're able to walk into a room, sit down with other people, advocate for their needs a little bit better. Whereas in other countries where climbing is a lot newer, it's not well known. People might think climbers are a little bit crazy. There is definitely less of a ground to stand on to advocate for our needs. I'm curious how that will change as climbing becomes an Olympic sport. I think in some places it'll gain a lot more notoriety or or, uh, awareness among people. So that might change. I think we're definitely growing in that direction. And it's it's an amazing time to have the climbing initiative exist so that we can be tracking all of that, engaging with people. We, we have contacts all over the world in, in a lot of these different countries where climbing is new and growing. And so we hope that with the increased visibility of climbing, we can help people advocate for what they need and connect uh, with other people worldwide for advice. Yeah. I imagine in a place that's not very familiar with climbing, just that unfamiliarity might lead to hesitation or any there's some kind of mm-hmm. apprehension, like, what is this? You're, you're, you're doing what now? That's uh, yeah, that seems yeah. like it could be a barrier, but that is encouraging to hear that, you know, things are moving forward and, and productive conversations have been had. Yeah. We see some different reactions in some places. The concern over safety really is paramount in other places. You sometimes see stakeholders, uh, people in the community, local leaders immediately asking the question of, okay, how do I benefit? (laughs) 
where's where's the money? <laughs> like, what, how does what's it in work? it for me? Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, how how long after you put these bolts in the wall are we going to start to see tourism questions like that? So right. it really, yeah, it's it's interesting watching those patterns fold out. Yeah, which I guess I mean in a in a way, I mean, is that like a yeah, it's a fair question to ask. Like, you want to bring tourism here? Like, okay, so what's what's the plan of implementation? What's the timeline? When is this going to start benefiting us? Actually, Cerro Castillo is a really great example of kind of one of the tourism conversations happening at like a local level of the local government, local leadership level. Um, So I went down to Cerro Castillo in September of 2019 to work with Exceso Pan Am. So Chris from Exceso Pan Am spoke um, on one of the panels about uh, local engagement and what they had done with some partners. So they worked with Knowles in Patagonia and some of the local climbing clubs, they actually held a local community stakeholders meeting about sustainable tourism. And it was specifically around mountaineering and rock climbing because they've really blown up as a location for rock climbing in Chile. Um, They have over 300 routes um, that have been put in place because they have a rock festival that happens once a year um, that was started three years ago. And so because of all that's happening, they tried to bring tourism leaders, um, the national park leaders, the local landowners and leaders within the community all together for a weekend retreat on like, why is tourism in this area important? Why is rock climbing and mountaineering important? How do we all benefit from this and all grow from this? And it was just really cool to see that happening. Well, that's amazing. And Exceso Pan Am, that's, that's essentially the equivalent of Access Fund yeah, for that region. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was yeah. Same, started same by started it. Yeah. Yes, exactly. It was started by Armando Menacal, who is a Cuban American, mm-hmm. started Access Fund, and then had his sights set a little bit broader when he looked at his uh, home region and said, "You know, we should we should establish an Access Fund for Latin America as well." So his work in the U.S. and abroad has been amazing. That's amazing. Nothing short of amazing. Uh, what, do you know what year that started? I don't recall. <laughs> I don't think we do. Uh, just, just curious. Yeah. Um, yeah. I need to get that guy on the show for sure. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so partnerships, the the final kind of the final piece of the mission for the climbing initiative, and you've mentioned already a couple of organizations that you have partnerships with. How do those How do those partnerships come about? Is that kind of organically grow after the community engagement piece? Uh, yeah, kind of. It, it, it happens a couple different ways. So partnerships is really where the development piece and climbing kind of come together, uh, where that we kind of use a phrase here at the Climbing Initiative that we do research to then put forth action. Um, so that action then becomes the best practices, it becomes community engagement, but ultimately it becomes partnerships. And one of the things we're interested in is working with climbing communities um, or climbing organizations to make themselves the best version of themselves they can be and start to utilize these best practices. So um, our two main partnerships right now that are active is CLAW, Climb Like a Woman, based in India, um, and Escalando Fronteras, based in Mexico. Um, and so both of those happened organically. They both reached out to us and saw what we were doing and saw the research we had been performing. And we've had past partnerships um, where we worked on a project together and then that's been completed. Uh, and so they saw examples of that and said, hey, we need help. Can you help us? So for CLAW, they really wanted to improve 
their organization at an organizational level. So improving mission, vision, values, um, how do they make the things that they're dreaming about and the things they're already doing um, more successful? And then how do they measure that? So what's really important to us is evaluation, good evaluation shows whether we're actually having the impact we say we're having. And so helping people to create evaluation tools like surveys, um, which is what we're doing with Escalando Fronteras, and Veronica can elaborate on that. Um, but other people want that too. A lot of people want to know, like, how do we measure the impact we're having? Um, this is both good for them and also good for getting grants, right? A lot of grants mm-hmm. are looking for that measurement piece as well. Um, and so we're helping them do those things, sort of the nuts and bolts of how do you run a good organization or how do you engage well with the local community, that kind of stuff. So Veronica can talk about Escalando Fronteras, which is really cool. Yeah, I'll fill in the details here. So Escalando Fronteras, meaning climbing borders, they are located in northern Mexico in the Monterrey area. And they were established with the idea that uh, in the less uh, privileged areas of Monterrey, there are a lot of issues and quality of life uh, patterns that can be improved if people come together and form a community and start working on things like mental health, addiction, uh, education. And the organization originally started addressing these issues with adults, but ultimately they had the idea that taking a step back and working with children um, in a preventative sense, creating better patterns with them would be the way to change this community for the better. And climbing was the tool that they saw to do that through. So they take kids from these neighborhoods in Monterey climbing in, uh, in Puerto Rico. And then they also have uh, seminars and workshops with the kids and the parents and uh, incentives to keep them in school, um, things like sexual health education, drug education, alcohol, all these different um, aspects that they want to address. And so they came to us asking for our help to, A, learn more about what impacts their program was having, and B, then think about how to do it better. So we've helped them develop surveys. Luckily, one of our team members, Ludovine Brunison, she is our director of research, and she just happens to come from a child psychology neuroscience background. And so it was a perfect fit. We couldn't believe it that she <laughs> was completely versed in all of these measurement tools, um, well-respected in the field, and, and had the perfect approach of How do we apply these standardized surveys in a way that is most useful to Escalando Fronteras and is culturally appropriate? And how do we translate from English to Spanish uh, in a way that will preserve the integrity of all these questions? Yeah, it was a whole process working together to balance, you know, how much do we stick to the academic approach here versus how much do we tailor it to what exactly Escalando Fronteras is doing and what they need to measure for the impact for the efficacy of their programs. I think we've struck a really beautiful balance where they're now implementing these surveys, asking kids in their program before it starts and after the program ends uh, to see changes in them. And they're really, really remarkable. Uh, Some of the findings of this that were shared in the uh, measuring impact panel at the conference, if any of you want to watch that recording, I think it's great. Uh, one of the findings that Alejandro shared was that when these kids 
enter this program and start climbing, that they find that there's a pattern of the parents becoming a lot more engaged in their lives. They said something as simple as climbing gives them something to talk about at the dinner table and gives um, parents a reason to engage more. They have a, uh, there's a pattern of fathers not being as engaged um, among a lot of these participants. And so they see fathers becoming real <laughs> advocates for this sport and wanting to drop their kids off at, at the program and, and engaging in this way and, and seeing their kids as uh, valuable members of society, having a lot of potential. I think there's a huge metaphor of climbing and um, reaching new heights that really applies in such a literal way here. I don't know, it's going to bring a tear to my eye talking about it. I mean, <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Alejandro's yeah, pre- presentation and his work, it was it was very moving. And yeah, the work in youth development and those examples that you just gave that that he gave in his in his workshop, you know, that really resonated with me. And seeing those just tangible behavioral changes empowering kids to feel like I guess probably like kids and not to be you know maybe afraid to go home or or have like these negative thoughts on a day-to-day basis I mean they have like this emotional like sovereignty I guess to, to, to feel like a kid again uh it was it was very moving stuff and yeah there's that tangible measurement before and after I, I'm really happy to hear that that happens in their program they do like they do like a, you know a survey of sorts beforehand and then after to measure those results, it's incredible. Yeah, you phrased that so beautifully. And that's why we do what we do at the Climbing Initiative. I mean, Danny and I get goosebumps still every time we talk about this and all the other members of our team. I mean, this we live for this stuff. We live for people having using the sport as a tool to have a variety of positive impacts in the world. I think it's incredibly, incredibly powerful. Yeah, absolutely. Danny, I believe you mentioned it, but I think you said something that that was really powerful a few minutes ago about research translating into action. And I think that is so critical, but it seems obvious, I think just a little bit, but, but it's, it's critical. You don't want these case studies or these partnerships Mm -hmm. or these engagement with communities to, you know, they, they get done, they get completed and they sit on a shelf and collect dust. Like, which is so common in the academic world. Like that, it doesn't matter what field I've worked in. Like research is so separate from what's actually happening on the ground and the connection Mm -hmm. between the two very rarely happens. And so that's something I think we're also like really passionate about is making sure that research and action are always connected, that they're constantly informing each other, you know, without Mm -hmm. talking to the people like we're talking to for best practices, we wouldn't know what's happening on the ground. And without doing the research to then prove it, we wouldn't be able to say, here's what we've seen be successful. Let's see how this works in your context. Do you see sometimes uh, practices being implemented and then coming back like, okay, maybe that, maybe that wasn't the best approach. How can we tailor this or kind of amend it to be better? Has, has that happened before? I think we're pretty new as an organization still. And so we're still in the initial phase of a lot of the impact work that we're doing around the world. So we have plans to watch that grow over time. But I will say, I think one of the things we've learned since our founding is that sometimes it's harder to implement things than you might expect. I mean, there's a way things have developed the way they've developed, right? And having social change or economic change or environmental change, it really requires so many things from so diff- so many different directions. And so, for example, engaging a local community, it's really easy from the outside to say, 
you should talk more to locals. You should engage locals more in the climbing community. Um, but when you then get on the ground and, and say, okay, well, I've been asking locals to come climb with me and they say that they're, you know, that it just, it seems too scary for them or that they don't feel like that's right for them, you know, then it's kind of a, you know, that, that put up, puts up some challenges to really engaging, or you can get all the businesses together in a room and have some really good conversation, but the follow-up, oh my gosh, like follow-up and translating awesome ideas into on-the-ground impact. Yeah, it takes so much time, so much effort, so many dedicated people. I think luckily within the climbing world, we tend to be pretty dedicated people. We'll throw ourselves at a rock for some reason <laughs> over years and years. Um, so I think I see a lot of tenacity, a lot of dedication there. So that's something we'll see over time, I think. And we, we are, as an organization, really uh, focused on evaluating our own impact and how we are doing our work, getting constant feedback from our partners, making sure that we're providing what they need and continuing to tailor over time. That's one of the reasons that we are creating our best practices document as a living document. Um, it'll be a collection of short pieces from different authors with different areas of expertise, whether it's vaulting and anchor management or different aspects of environmental sustainability or how to create an inclusive climbing community, all these different topics. We're bringing them together, but the idea is that it's a living document so that we can add chapters over time or change and add new lessons and new observations and recommendations so that as our sport continues to develop and as we learn more, we can continue creating the knowledge that our community needs. Mm -hmm. And climbing is going to always change as it becomes more popular, as it spreads to different communities, it's going to take on a different culture of itself in those spaces. And so what we're learning in India isn't necessarily going to always apply for other countries. And so there's certain core truths, I think, um, like local engagement, always engage the locals, but how you do that local engagement is going to be different in each area. Who do you talk to first? Who do you need to invite to the table first? Are there people who are making the money decisions? Are people not being honest if other people are there? Like um, when I was in Cerro Castillo, they didn't invite the businesses because they felt like the community wouldn't be as honest if the businesses were present. Um, and so just being really conscious of each of those things. And unfortunately, we as the Climate Initiative can't know those intricacies going into the situation because we don't live in those communities. Right. And that's why relationships are so important. And building those relationships, finding that gatekeeper person or group of people who welcome you into the community and say, this is what our cultural context looks like. This is how we interact. This is the person you need to talk to before you talk to that other person, because otherwise their feelings will be hurt. Things like that is so important. And so that's why like, you have to build relationships. And that's the whole point. Like, Let's be relational. Let's listen. And let's do this together. Yeah, I think that's definitely an inherent thing with very collaborative, multi-stakeholder working groups. You got to build trust, have empathy, listen to understand, not listen to reply. And there is no canned approach that you guys, that you all can take here. Just because it worked in one place, it might not translate to another. So you okay. got to have that, have that adaptive approach and this best practices document that's coming out. You said it's a living document. So I imagine, yeah, it's got some adaptability to it as, as the climbing community changes, as the sport changes, as the world changes. I mean, you gotta, you gotta play ball here and roll with the punches a little bit. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. 
All right. That was awesome. I have a very thorough understanding of the climbing initiative and I hope everyone does as well. Awesome work. So let's switch gears here into last weekend, the 2020 Climbing Advocacy Conference, which this year was entitled, the theme was Global Perspective on Local Solutions. That brought amazing opportunity to bring in international representatives and put a global perspective, hence the title or the theme, on climate advocacy. And I love the way the Rock and Ice article put it, an FA for Access Fund. And it certainly was bringing, bringing in, like creating this first ever international climate advocacy conference. And I want to repeat real quick what Chris Winter, executive director of Access Fund said, you know, they're not becoming a global organization, but they're certainly not opposed to bringing in these global perspectives. It benefits everyone. And I got to say, it was a very powerful weekend. I've always wondered how advocacy works internationally. And I've had this domestic lens on pretty much always learning about the work and issues that are going on here at home. So bringing in this global perspective this year was very impactful, my own perspective of the global climate community. That's wonderful to hear. So glad. <laughs> yeah, it was a very effective, very awesome weekend. So the Climbing Initiative was a major planning partner in the event this year. Have, have either of you been to uh, the annual conference before? I have, yeah. It okay. was in Seattle last year, so. I it came. was? Yes, yeah. yes, I was there. <laughs> well, we were in the same room then. <laughs> yeah, we brushed shoulders at some point for sure. Um, so how did this partnership this year for the conference come about and what were you looking to accomplish with Access Fund? Well, Chris and I know each other from Access Fund and the Climbing Initiative. We're both based in Colorado. We've uh, met each other just through through the small knit world of climbing. So Chris came to us with the idea to make the conference international back when it was originally planned to be in Chattanooga. Um, and so I thought that was phenomenal and want to commend Access Fund so much for having this vision from the beginning, um, just with, I guess, where the world is at this stage, where climbing is. They had this idea that the conversation would be enriched by having voices that are not just from the U.S. So we were planning on getting international climbing leaders to Chattanooga. Um, I believe they secured a grant to be able to fly people. And so we were having a conversation about how to make this equitable, how not to only have international climbers who could afford to come to the U.S., but rather to include everyone and, and have people for whom that would normally be very cost prohibitive. And rapidly that conversation shifted into, okay, the world's a little bit different now. 2020 is something we've never seen before. And suddenly travel within our country or internationally is not going to be possible. So we started a conversation around what that could look like and access fund, uh, again, to their credit. I, I was so impressed with them this whole time. They jumped very fast onto the idea of a virtual conference. We saw other actors in the outdoor industry cancel some events and, and say, you know what, I, this sounds really challenging. Not sure if we're going to do this, but Access Fund completely stepped up and said, actually, this could be an opportunity to make it even more global. So I was so happy to continue working with them um, for us to, to continue thinking about how this could work. So we figured out what those panels could look like all the topics that we thought the international climbing community would be interested in learning about and just brought together the climbing initiatives network that we've built plus access funds network. And 
it ended up with a conference with, I believe, more than 650 registrants. And uh, it, those people came from, I think, over 36 countries. So it really was a phenomenal showing up of all the climbers around the world. 36 countries. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know that. That is amazing. Yeah. Awesome weekend. I, I kicked off the weekend by attending your workshop, Veronica, that you co-paneled climbing as an economic force and hearing those numbers from you and James and what was the the lady's name from from Greece I forget now Katie she yes she's the guidebook uh, co-author of the guidebook for Klimnos and other places nice. in Greece yeah awesome yeah yeah very very informative workshop and when you look at the how how these numbers are influencing a local a local economy due to climbing it's just astonishing James said that $6.2 million were spent in the GMUG, which is the Grand Mesa Uncompahgre Gunnison National Forest where I where I live. I was really, yeah, <laughs> blown out of my chair when I heard that. That was really, really cool. Uh, can you describe how climbing can bring sustainable economic growth to a community? Absolutely. Yeah. This panel was amazing. I All these recordings are available uh, through Access Fund's uh, conference platform. So you can go there, register and have access to to them. I think everyone should watch them. They're fantastic. But yeah, I, I may be biased, but I think the economic force workshop was fantastic. <laughs> so and starting off with James, I mean, yeah, all of his work is so, so incredible and in giving us those numbers. So climbing in in economic terms, I think is really powerful because the specific reason that a lot of areas with phenomenal cliffs are rural. You just, there are some that are near cities, but overwhelmingly climbing areas tend to be near rural communities. And a lot of these communities don't have many other options for uh, generating economic growth. And so some of these communities, like James pointed out, turn to mining or other extractive industry um, or, or just other less sustainable routes. But once you... Once climbers start to show up and develop climbing and start pointing out that, hey, this is actually a major tourism driver, that can completely transform an area. Um, and so I think that is an incredibly powerful aspect of this. So we see it happening in a number of ways all around the world. Um, climbers are spending money on accommodations, transportation, guiding services, rest day activities, um, restaurants, groceries. Uh, rental cars, yeah, it, it like like you said, those numbers once you actually look at them are quite phenomenal. And if those are the numbers from smaller climbing areas, I would be thrilled to see numbers start getting put on international areas. I think the number, the if we put if we quantified the economic impact on Kalimnos, I think we'd get a lot more attention as a sport. Um, so I'm really looking forward to doing that someday. Yeah, I mean, you can't argue with numbers. I know politicians, lawmakers like to hear those kind of numbers because they want to. Yeah, they want to know what kind of money is is benefiting their country, the, what's, what's contributing to the GDP, things of that nature. Absolutely, I think the data and measurement and getting numbers is really important. But one of the things I loved about our conversation on that panel was that it really was holistic in terms of quantitative and qualitative approaches. So we right. spent a lot of time yeah, talking about how you communicate with uh, local governments, how you engage with local businesses, um, different patterns we're seeing there, and just 
capturing the feeling of a community, how people feel about climbing, what they what they're thinking, um, what how climbers are engaging. Um, these are all kind of more nuanced things that aren't you can't really capture numbers um another thing we talked about was cultural shifts like what happens when you drop a bunch of climbers in these areas yes yes with with areas um that can have very different cultures and how do those come together how how do cultures change and how that can be a great thing but then in other ways when do you want to be um when do you want to have a close eye on that and and one of the things that came up in the local and local community engagement panel shared by Felipe, who works with Fundacion Exceso Andino in Ecuador. He talked a lot about developing sustainable ecotourism in rural areas with indigenous communities, communities that do not have uh, frequent interaction with outsiders. And so the, the really, his desire to be conscientious of that and uh, preserve local cultures and traditions and heritages. I think all of that is a really important dimension that we may not think of talking about immediately when we think economic impact of climbing, but it's all tied together. So I was so happy with how all of these panels seem to take a really multidimensional approach to these ideas. Yeah, that was one question that Eric Murdoch asked during the economic force workshop is preventing that gentrification. And not influencing that or how to maintain culture. Right. And I thought mm-hmm. I was like, that was a, that's a really good point. I'm glad you mentioned that. So yeah, I wanted to bring up that question, but you already answered it. So that was perfect. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have all the answers. We're mostly, you know, a lot of what we do is ask the questions. I think our sport is growing so rapidly and people have so many different ideas. That's what I love about this conference is just bringing everyone into the same room. So we'll definitely this, this definitely is not the, the last stage of this. Um, we'll, all of the people participating in this conference, we're, we're all still talking to each other and engaging and connecting with others to keep these questions alive because, yeah, we don't have the answer to all of those problems, but I'm really glad we're asking the questions. That's a great way to put it in a very uh, just humble and modest approach, I think. Oh, <laughs> I, I, I studied tourism in my undergrad, and a lot of it was about sustainable tourism, ecotourism, and it just doesn't go as planned all the time. And a lot of things just get left off the table, and it just goes south, I think, quick. So yeah. these these perspectives that Felipe or these approaches that Felipe are, are bringing to his community, to, to that community, is is exemplary and he was showing pictures of these of these like rundown schools with bars in the window and broken glass and and it was it was like oh my gosh and just if climbers can play a part in improving that and the quality of life <laughs> I, I i'm not sure if i had the right explanation to wrap my emotions into that but it's it's, it's amazing well and i think that's what's really interesting too and one of the things that we're working on right now is the report for chile Um, We're talking about the idea around participatory development, which is like an academic term of getting local communities engaged in a project that you're working on. And one of the things we really want to point out is that it's not about participatory development as a way of creating this project, that the project was imagined without the local community's involvement. So this is sort of that question Felipe asked of like, you know, we should ask the local community, do we even, do you even want climbing here? Like that's mm-hmm. not our decision to make for you. We might see your rocks and go, oh, those look really cool. And we really want to climb those, but it's really important <laughs> to ask them, like, do you want climbing here? Is this something you're interested in? Are you interested in maybe these tourism 
events and people coming here. Um, and if they are interested, then the whole point is, you know, getting that local involvement. So it's not actually at the end of the day about what you're creating, although that's very cool. It's really actually about the project of creating it together, that doing that work together, working with local communities, working with governments, working with climbing communities and non-climbers to do the work together is really the most important part of the puzzle. I think I think you nailed it. And the work that Felipe does, the work that Alejandro does in Mexico, these guys are the epitome of using climbing as a force for good. And that's what I, I love to see the sport doing beyond all the rad shit that we see all the time, like this, moving this stuff forward in, in a really positive manner. It, it reflects really well on our community. I know there's some things that we can improve upon. Uh, there's a lot of things that have been discussed this year with social justice and, and everything like that. But I think we're moving forward in the right direction. And this just gave me more positive reinforcement here in these stories over the weekend. Mm-hmm. And that's what's really cool is we're all people who live in society and we are products of the society we live in. But climbing is this microcosm of experiences within society. And so it's an opportunity for us to have these conversations in a smaller community group to then start to change our minds and change our feelings and change our experiences so that we can then enter back out into society and say, hey, I actually think that I'm different now and therefore I want to help my community to be different too. Mm -hmm. Exactly. What other workshops did you two enjoy over the weekend? Well, I really liked the diversity panel. That was one of my favorites. Um, I'm a little bit of a fangirl of Memphis Rocks, so <laughs> it's really fun to have John <laughs> on there. Um, and Gowrie is one of the women in CLAW that we work with. And Liz, uh, we connected with in Kenya, and she knows Peter, who's our ambassador. So it was just really fun to have all three of them on the panel. It was really cool to see two like really strong, powerful, kick-ass women uh, talking about the climbing community in a context that you don't see a lot of women from other countries talking about climbing community and being these leaders of movements for their communities. Um, I loved hearing about Liz talking about how Climbing Life Kenya is all female run. That's really inspiring to me. So I really enjoyed that panel specifically. Um, And actually the intro was super fun. It was really cool to have everyone introduce themselves and say where they're from and why they came to this conference and just to see the faces of people from all over the world. Yeah, I love the round table that Mike always hosts at uh, the beginning of each conference. It's an awesome Mm -hmm. idea. Get to know some folks. How about you, Veronica? Yeah, a panel that I loved was the Global Perspectives on bolting and anchor management. I thought that all of those speakers brought such different perspectives. Um, Armando, or, uh, sorry, Anibal Fernandez um, from the Elancia Cubana de Equipadores. Um, he brought in the perspective of a Cuban developer and kind of started us off with these conversations about the challenge of developing in a country where climbing is illegal, where people are sometimes sent to jail a little bit he i (laughs) remarkable how i know how casually he said that that's just the reality (laughs) that this is something that in a country that i can attest has some of the best rock in the world i'm a big limestone girl so like that was so fantastic to go there i recommend it for everyone um but like how do you reconcile that with the fact that it's technically illegal it's kind of a, a thing that the government looks kind of looks to the side on and and doesn't really get foreigners in trouble 
often, but uh, the Cubans and the, and the route developers are under some scrutiny. And so that dynamic, I mean, thinking of bolting and anchor management from that perspective, I think surprised probably a lot of people in the audience who were there expecting to you know, talk about expansion bolts and stuff. So that was a fantastic and really entertaining way to start that. And then that led into Stephen sharing his perspectives on metallurgy and really explaining literally the nuts and bolts of how we <laughs> bolt and revolt and manage our climbing areas uh, from his perspectives working on the UIAA Safety Commission and, and with the American Alpine Club. And then finally, Jason uh, from the Salt Lake Climbers Alliance shared with us the process of running that organization and educating and uh, yeah, how you create a system of people who manage climbing uh, areas. And one of the things I love that he shared, he brought in this idea of inclusivity in, uh, in, in climbing development, which I hadn't even thought of really, but he, the point for him to take a moment and make that point that having people from backgrounds that are often underrepresented as people who are bolting cliffs, I think was really powerful to me and just shows, um, I think the consciousness of this sport. And I'm so enthused to see where we are at in terms of incorporating conversations about inclusivity really to every dimension of what our sport does. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was, that was really great work on Jason's, on Jason's part. They have like, they had a professional like team of bolters, right? They didn't contract it out. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was that was really cool stuff. All right, right on. So let's I want to wrap things up just a little bit here. Uh, let's go back to the climbing as an economic force workshop, Veronica, that you were on. You had three big takeaways that you ran through, and that's how I like to kind of button things up here because I think it'd be a great conclusion to our conversation. And the first one was inclusive economic growth. Could you unpack that for us a little bit? Absolutely. This really wraps up a lot of the things we've been talking about here is that climbing as an economic force uh, needs to be developed consciously with attention to engaging local communities. Um, We see some places where certain people, not always from the local context, uh, are the ones who think to develop the businesses or um, create fees for access to climbing areas, things like that. And so that can develop naturally, but if we see that happening, it can create tension in the local community. And so that was the first point here that came out of the climbing initiatives research that I shared was by developing climbing, uh, climbing's economic impact inclusively by engaging with local businesses, um, paying special attention to who is benefiting, trying to distribute those benefits broadly amongst a community and really just having an open conversation about how that uh, economic system is developing, I think is best for the climbing areas and the most likely to create a dynamic where climbing is welcomed for many years. Awesome. Number two was having the right systems in place. Yeah. So an outgrowth of that, if we're talking about the economic impact of climbing, we need to develop systems and institutions to support that. So that has to do with things like climbing associations, national parks, um, uh, search and rescue teams, all of the different things that can support climbing. And so having those 
in place helps us address issues that come up. It helps us address environmental impact or um, safety issues. It helps us get everyone on the same page and make decisions together. Um, it can really be helpful in terms of figuring out funding. I think what we see in a lot of areas is that climbers out of their own pocket develop these areas and it's incredibly generous of them. But then once climbing grows a lot, I mean, climbing is not free. We need to put money into a pot uh, in order to rebolt and take care of trails and do all these really important tasks. And so um, I think it's uh, what we see commonly is local communities being grateful that climbing has been developed and, and being thankful that, that that was done so generously. But then when, when we sometimes come and ask them for help with the expenses of keeping up the area, if the communication channels haven't been laid for that, there tends not to be a ton of support or there can be barriers to the proper support being in place. And so I think this is the point here is that by creating systems and associations and um, community meetings, like an annual meeting of the whole community to talk about climbing, those are the kind of things we can put in place to give us the channels to work through all the issues or uh, tasks that come about in managing a climbing area. Got it. Awesome. Finally, quality data and best practices. Yeah, this third takeaway from our climbing initiative research and, and just what we're seeing all over the world is that everything that we're doing well could be bolstered even further if we can put either numbers on it in a quantitative way or tell stories from it and have reports and, and uh, solid evidence of how things are unfolding over time in a qualitative way. So this is what we're advocating for as the climbing initiative is that we that we're in a really beautiful moment in the development of our sport um, with our entry into the Olympics next year and all the different um, catalysts that we have, all the different, all the media attention, all of these things, it's really growing so fast. And so capturing everything at this moment in time, as soon as possible so that we can see change over time, we can see economic impact, environmental impact. Um, we can talk about how to maximize the positive impacts of our sport and control the negative ones. So that's what we are advocating for with more data being collected. And then the final stage of that is let's create some best practices. Let's share our knowledge. Let's, uh, Go back. Let's look back to the beginning uh, for all of us who have been engaged in developing this sport and say, oh my gosh, if I were to do this again, I would do these three things differently. Um, I think that kind of knowledge is really, really valuable to share. So from an economic standpoint, I think it's really essential that we share these best practices. Otherwise, we're missing out on really valuable opportunities to give an amazing source of income to a lot of different places in a way that's both um, sustainable and ethical. Putting it all into action. There you go. <laughs> Does uh, do, do either one of you want to share one favorite personal story from your travels climbing around climbing around the world? So I moved to Vietnam in January, which was unfortunate timing, um, but I got to live there for two months. Um, so it was really cool to climb there. We were going to do research there, but COVID kind of stopped that. Uh, but I got to climb and work with both Vietnamese climbers and then other climbers from all over the world. I was a climbing guide there, but what was really cool was seeing some of the local Vietnamese climbers. The climbing wasn't a super popular sport for many Vietnamese climbers, but there was one guy who he's one of the boat drivers and he uh, helps with the deep water solo climbing. And he's so good. And he just literally climbs circles barefoot. Um, 
for the tourists because he thinks it's fun and they think it's fun and he's an amazing climber and so we occasionally would take him out um top roping and again he'd be climbing without shoes and he would be so good um and then some of the women the vietnamese women that we work with we would take him out climbing and try to like share the joy of climbing with them it was really fun to watch them get excited about that for them climbing tourism was a business more than it was a pleasure but they were getting into it and enjoying it with us and the climbing guides that I worked with were really excited to like take them out so it was really fun to just live in that context and be a part of the community for a period of time yeah what an amazing experience I'm sorry I got cut short I know me too (laughs) (laughs) how about you Veronica Yeah, I think when I think about really impactful moments in developing the climbing initiative, there are so many, but one that stands out in my mind was visiting the the Palestinian West Bank and conducting our first case study there. That was really where we conducted the study and said, oh my gosh, there really is so much happening here that deserves to be captured. Um, I think it was a fascinating story to dive into. Our friends who developed the climbing there uh, in the West Bank near Ramallah, they did so so conscientiously and really they were very conscious that they didn't want to just develop cliffs. They were really there to develop a community and, and build a gym and, and bring this sport and its positive social impacts. So they were really, really welcoming to the local kids. And I think one of the things um, I've spent a lot of time in the Middle East, but I think one of the things that Uh, everyone else may not know is that there is a really strong divide between people in cities and people in the rural areas, um, often who are Bedouin, so just from a different tradition. And they, because of a lot of these areas they were developing were rural, um, they really engaged with the curious Bedouin kids, some of whom were like herding sheep below the crag. So they put those kids up in harnesses and they were climbing. I think one of them flashed 10C in Crocs on day one <laughs> <laughs> on top rope as like a little kid. And that guy is now one of the best climbers in the whole country. They're they're all amazing. And so the the real, the most significant impact that we heard and and saw it with our own eyes in that community was um, people telling us that there was no other circumstance where they in their everyday lives interacted with people from such different socioeconomic backgrounds within their own community. And climbing was the one area where, you know, after just having dinner at, at the end of the day, um, seeing all those people from different walks of life within that small context um, was really, really powerful for them in an area with so much conflict and obvious tensions over land and things like that. I mean, that to find that beauty and connection and meaning within their lives through that, that is something I'll carry with me forever. Oh boy. Yeah. Having climbing as that common denominator is, it's, it's just the best. It's just the best. I'm so excited about the work you all are doing. What's What's next for the Climbing Initiative and how can a listener or someone get involved with the organization? Yeah, we are really excited about this best practices project. We really see this as the culmination of the work that we've done so far and the launching uh, pad for everything that we're going to do in the future. We think that bringing together everyone's voice and uh, including the perspectives of people from all over the world, we're so excited about that. It's the core of what we do. So we, uh, for, for anyone who wants to get involved, we are welcoming 
really with open arms, anyone who wants to be involved in that project with a lot of different roles. People can be authors or peer reviewers, editors, or just general supporters, people wanting to get the word out and spread this knowledge to uh, the people who will benefit from it. So they can go to our website, uh, climbinginitiative.org, navigate to the best practices part of the website and submit a form to tell us they want to be involved. Um, That is one way. Danny has some other ideas of how people can be involved as well. Yeah, so community engagement uh, is the piece we talked about before, storytelling. So we're always looking to tell stories. The best practices and our reports and our case studies, they take a lot of time to develop. So we're not able to get those out as quickly as maybe we would like. Uh, But stories, we can share those more quickly and we can share a lot of different stories. So we're always looking for unique uh, or creative stories that talk about kind of the values that we've talked about so far, engagement, inclusivity, Um, things like that and we're really happy to be a platform to share those stories so if people have stories they want to author a story we're more than happy to work with them to share that story Um, and then actually we're also looking to add to our team right now Um, we're specifically looking for people who are passionate about kind of engaging with communities and others through social media um, and having someone join our team to kind of work with social media all right. Well, I'll be sure to share. I'll be, I'll be sure to share all that information far and wide once the show goes live. Thank you both so much for your time. I really hope we can connect some time down the road and keep up keep up the good work. It's it's very powerful, very unique, and and it's something that that we very much need. And I just want to also say, like storytelling is the ultimate communicator. So keep those stories coming. All right. Thank you, Veronica. Thank you, Danny, for taking the time to share your knowledge and wisdom and experience in this facet of climbing advocacy. Your passion for this stuff is undeniable. Seeing, hearing, and learning about these tangible examples of how climbing could be used as a force for good is something I'm just so damn proud of. I know other sports, other activities can be a force for good and positive influence and change as well. There's certainly no denying that, but since climbing is the activity I am most connected with, it makes it's just something that makes me incredibly proud to see what this community and sport is capable of. And if you haven't already, start following the Climbing Initiative. They're very active on Instagram, social media, constantly sharing information, sharing stories. So check them out at The Climbing Initiative on Instagram. I know you won't regret it. And if you could please also take some time to subscribe to the show. If this is your first time listening, hit that subscribe button, share it with your friends, leave me a review, leave me a positive comment on Apple Podcasts. I'd appreciate it so much. In the meantime, stay safe, have fun out there. We're winding down on 2020 and... Let's see what 2021 brings us. Let's not just bounce back from everything that's happened this year. Let's bounce forward. So take care, and I'll see you all next month.